Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. My guest on today's podcast is Deb Weatherby. 23 years ago, Deb founded what has now become one of the largest independent RAs in the country with nearly $4.5 billion under management, 66 team members, and a whopping $10 million client minimum. But what makes Weatherby Asset Management fascinating to me, though, is not just the size of the firm or the affluence of its clientele, but the way it's grown its team. On the podcast, you hear how Deb's firm has created an incredibly rigorous hiring process with multiple interviews, outside experts doing personality tests, and and an onboarding process that includes one meeting just to talk about the culture and values of the firm and another that guides employees about what they need to do to be successful in the firm, culminating in what are now 17 owner advisors in the firm. You'll also hear about how Deb struggled with wanting to feel like she was part of the team and and not separating herself out as their leader, and how she ultimately found she had to focus on developing her own leadership skills to move past that, and that despite the size and success of the firm today, it actually took her three years of growth just to break even in the new RIA business, and she actually wrapped up credit card debt along the way just to stay afloat to build what ultimately is today a, a very large and successful firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Deb Weatherby. Welcome, Deb Weatherby, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. I'm happy to join you. I'm excited to to have you on the podcast to talk about this rather tremendous, sizable advisory firm that you've created out in San Francisco. So for those who aren't familiar, well, let me let me let you actually just describe your advisory firm. I mean, how would you explain in our advisory industry landscape and, and terms, what is Weatherby Asset Management? We're a fee-only investment advisory firm that works primarily with wealthy individuals and families. Our minimum client is $10 million. We have offices in San Francisco and New York. Our team is about 66 people, and we manage between four and four and a half billion in assets. So that's a, a pretty large, sizable number by any means. And, and how many, do you know about how many clients is that across the firm? 10 million minimums and four and a half billion, so like four or 500 kind of size? Yes, it's about 500 clients. So we do have legacy clients from a time when our minimum wasn't what it is today. And so we do have clients below that 10 million as well as clients above. And what do you what do you do for clients? I mean, I think there are even a few people listen to podcasts who are probably wondering, like, what, what do you what do you do for a ten million dollar client to get them to give you assets and and pay you? What does that look like? Well, we we really consider ourselves their financial partner, so we try to be their first call on any decision on the financial side of their lives. So 
the core of our work centers around managing their investment portfolio. But to do that work, we really need to understand what their goals and objectives are and what's important to them so that we can support and enable what the role of wealth is in their lives. So what does that look like from a a fee schedule perspective? Like, what do you charge people that have $10 million? Is that like a flat retainer fee? Do you still do AUM fees like a lot of other firms? We actually have both arrangements with clients. We have retainer arrangements as well as... AUM arrangements, and our fee schedule is a sliding scale. The top end of the scale is 75 basis points, and the low end of the scale is 15. But for you, like the top end of the scale of 75 basis points, that just seems like anybody up to 10 million is basically a, a flat 75 basis points. Is that when the first break point actually hits? The break point is higher than 10 million, but up to 10 million would be 75 basis points. So what does a client get at doing my math here? $75,000 annual fee is kind of a starting point for, for working with Weatherby. Now I, I can kind of do the math, like 500 clients and 66 people in the firm. So like there's a, there's a lot of people. I mean, there's only eight to 10 clients for every staff member. So like, are you just regularly meeting with clients? Are you regularly talking to them? Like, what does that service look like throughout the year? We do have discretion over their investment portfolio. So we are managing their portfolio on an ongoing basis. In addition to that, we're meeting with them and talking about any issues in their financial lives, whether it be an investment issue, a tax issue, an estate planning issue, an insurance issue, or a philanthropic issue. And if we don't have the expertise here on staff to help with that issue, then, you know, we'll engage someone outside the firm to help with that issue. And how often are these things coming up? Like, are are you meeting with clients once or twice a year? Do you like a very rigorous, hey, you're coming into our office every quarter? Is it more or less often than that? So we let clients set the frequency of how often they want to meet. So we have some clients who like to meet quarterly uh, like clockwork, and we have other clients that want to meet less than that. Or if they've got a lot going on, they might want to meet more than that. So it's really our whole model is driven around customizing our service levels and our offering to meet the needs of the client instead of asking the client to fit into our model. And so it's really about doing as much for them as they want and need. So the exception to that is, you know, we don't hire staff for people. We don't prepare tax returns. We don't draft legal documents. We do meet with clients and their estate planning attorney. You know, we do review tax projections. We do 
we have sat in on meetings with people hiring staff. So, you know, we're, we're very involved in our clients' lives. So like when the client is hiring their CPA, you might actually sit in to help them with the interview to figure out whether this is a competent CPA? Yeah. In fact, we might generate the list of three firms that they're going to talk to and set up the meetings and sit in on the meetings. And then, you know, we might come prepared with a list of things for the client to be thinking about and asking about and then help with evaluation in the in that process. How many financial planners, I don't know what do you call them, financial planners or wealth managers, like how many people are actually doing that work with clients versus the investment side of the business and what I'm sure is kind of a sizable operations team just to keep that many clients and advisor uh, and advisors running like what is the sort of the division of the firm look like in staff roles so we have six people doing research and some of those people also have client interaction and client roles then of the remaining 60 people two-thirds work directly with clients in some form, whether it's in planning, in investments, or in operations. And about one-third is support operations and administration that's more general. So that's actually a very a very large percentage of staff team that are outward-facing with clients. So from your perspective, like when you're in an environment where any one client, at least for the, the folks that are coming on board now, you know, starts at paying you $75,000 and it, and, it, and it goes up from there. I, I'm just curious, like, how do you get comfortable with having that many different staff members all interacting with clients? Like, do you ever worry that it's a lot of different people for a for some staff member to make some unfortunate comment that makes a very sizable client think about firing you. Like, is that a is that a worry for you with that many different staff interacting with such high net worth clientele? Well, it's a worry conceptually. I think we've thought a lot and talked about as a team uh, the risk to our business of having a bad employee. But practically, I have the gift of having the best team I've ever had. I really have an unbelievable group of people here. And the most common bit of feedback I get from people is the comment that no matter who they talk to at the firm, that person is always professional and trying to help them. So we, when people join the firm, I meet with every single person and we have culture and values session, which I tell them they're there to drink the Kool-Aid. And we spend a lot of time talking about our, what our values are as a firm and why they are what they are, what the important things are. And then we also do another session that our COO runs, which is, you know, how to be successful at Weatherby. 
and it's about taking ownership for your work and being an honest and open communicator. And, you know, it's a whole list of things that we tell people, you know, this is your, this is your path to success. So between that and the culture and values, I think we really try to set out clearly what our culture is and what the expectations are for people to be successful here. And and so literally like every employee that comes on board goes through this culture and values session and then this second session about with you, I think you said, and then the, and the second session about essentially how to be successful at the firm with your COO. That's just like a, a standard part of the onboarding process. Yes, it's it's part of our training schedule. And, you know, we learned to do this as we got bigger because when we were smaller, a lot of the information, you know, culture gets transmitted more organically. But as you get larger, you have to be explicit about culture or it doesn't get transmitted or it can get transmitted in a in a way that you don't want. And so we've we've learned to be very explicit about these things and to to do it right up front. And then we also with people we have a a regular feedback process, both mid-year and year-end feedback sessions. And once a year, we have people set goals and also do an individual development plan. And so all of those things are opportunities to coach people if they're having an issue that needs input or coaching or to gather feedback or to really mentor people on their path. And so we've had great success growing people up through the firm and we really feel like our our people are our biggest asset. And so we we spend a lot of time and energy thinking about you know, if we're going to ask a lot of them, how can we on the other side bring something to the table? So we do training, we do coaching, we do, you know, all kinds of things to really be a good partner with our employees so that they both know what's expected, but also have a, a way to grow and develop. So is there a certain size of the firm where you felt the need to instill this kind of infrastructure around hiring and development? It was like, hey, we were fine at 20 people, but it became a problem at 40, or we fine at 40, but became a problem at 60? Or, or was there something else that pushed you down the road of creating this kind of structure for taking on employees and then, and then reviewing them? Well... It really, we really started to notice at around 20 people that we had to be much more explicit about lots of things. But I, I would also say that our COO, Steve Janowski, who's just a, you know, incredibly talented person, 
he's really helped bring some of this structure to the table. And it's sort of his superpower is process and and structure. And that combined with the fact that we have an annual business planning process. So we solicit ideas from everyone on the team. We also do an annual culture and values survey, which is, you know, these are our stated values. Are we are we living up to what we say we believe in? And so between the feedback we get through the survey and also the ideas we get in the business planning process, we get a really good picture of where we are and what our development opportunities are as a firm. I I think a realistic picture of where you are currently is essential to a good planning process and from the business perspective a good planning process. Yeah, and we've we've actually written a business plan every year of our existence. So if if there's one thing that I can recommend for you guys out there listening, it would be a written business plan every year. And it doesn't have to be like a three-inch thick, you know, anything. It could even be, you know, a list on a sheet of paper that says, you know, these are my goals for the next year. But I, I think it's crucial. Just for creating that, like, is it a focus kind of thing? Is it uh, just it helps to think in advance of stuff rather than reacting? Like, what is it that makes the, the business plan so defining for you? Well, I think there's power in taking a realistic look at where you are. There's also power in thinking about where you want to go and, you know, thinking about what your vision is. And then the plan is simply the way you get from where you are to where you want to go. And I think without the discipline of doing it each year and without the discipline of writing it down, it's easy in our lives, which are full anyway, it's easy to sort of think that you've thought about it or think that you've sort of done it in your head when you really haven't. There's a discipline about actually doing it on paper. And there's a lot of science that says when you put things in writing, it clarifies your thought and it gives you momentum and motivation and it helps you follow through and then you can see what you've done. So there's, there's a fair amount of research that putting things in writing makes a big difference. But I, I think the planning itself for us it has helped us be proactive rather than reactive. And as opportunities have come up for us, we can evaluate them in the context of where we've already decided we want to go. And so it's instead of letting fate or opportunities determine our path, you know, we determined our path, and then opportunities either fit in that or didn't, or we adapted 
you know, in some in some cases, you know, we had a vision and an opportunity came that we weren't expecting and we said, "Hey, this this it wasn't on our one-year view, but it certainly is in our five-year view." And so we're adapting. It's long struck me in doing regular business planning across my business lines as well that there's an ironic challenge that arises with having a business that's successful, which is the more successful it is, often the more opportunities it attracts. And you know, Greg McCune is a fantastic book about this called Essentialism, where he he makes this point that often the success that gets you underway ultimately becomes the downfall that prevents you from moving forward because the success brings more opportunities and the opportunities start diffusing your energy and focus. And then suddenly you're doing so many different things. You're drowning in your business and you're not growing and moving forward anymore. You can't figure out what happened. And, and the answer is sort of the, the success itself. The focus that created the success eventually brought so many opportunities that you lost the focus that created your success. And that I, I find regularly, at least for me, the most helpful thing I get out of crafting a business plan about where we want to focus over the next one in three years is it's a filter to figure out what to say yes and no to when opportunities come along. Not that you can't adapt it, as you said, but that if there's no plan, it's really hard to figure out what to say yes and no to aside from, hmm, that sounds neat in the moment, which is usually not a very good strategic filter. Yeah, I totally agree. And it also helps you prioritize and it helps you allocate resources because you have made a decision in advance of what your goals and objectives are, both short term. You know, we used to do a one year and a five year plan, but like you, we have now gone to a one year and a three year plan. Yeah, I, I have to admit I've actually, you know, from my end, I'm 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 a huge year of a one year plan. A huge fan of a one year plan. I, I really like doing three year plans because it just gives some context to sort of where we're aiming and where we're trying to push. And I have to admit, at least for me, I, I really don't find strategic plans beyond three years to be very helpful because just too much changes. I mean, it's a little bit of a function of the growth rate. The The slower growth is, the easier it is to project a little bit further out. But the, the faster the growth rate, I find the, the less useful it is to project more than beyond about three years because the the business changes too fast. And, and frankly, sometimes the world changes too fast to, to try to project that far out and, and draw meaningful conclusions about where to focus. Yeah, we couldn't, we finally decided we just couldn't see that far out. And so it didn't make sense to, to do those extra years. And the reason we continue to do a three-year plan is that, you know, there are things that we want to do that are multi-year initiatives. And so... Can you, can you give an example of like what, what fits within a multi-year initiative in, in your business planning? So... In the last few years, we've done a number of big things. We've rebranded, which we moved both our San Francisco office and our New York office. And, you know, because as a part of the move, you're going to have to reprint all your materials anyway. It was an opportunity to to rebrand and 
rebranding for us wasn't something that we undertook lightly because it was all our materials and our website and our, you know, everything. So that was the the move. We started planning our move more than a year in advance, and we started all the the branding and planning for that more than a year in advance. So that was one. We're changing our reporting system, and that's been a multi-year thing. We It took us about what a year. What were you using, and then what are you going to? We were using Advent Access, and we're moving to Tamarack's Advisor View platform. And it took us... Almost a year to write our requirements document, to interview all the vendors and make a vendor selection and to start to plan the migration. And the migration is going to end up taking more than a year. And so, you know, those are, you know, we've got 26 years of history. And so it, there's, there's been a lot of data validation to go through. And, and so that, you know, those things take people's time and attention and take resources. At the same time, people have their day jobs. And so there are the clients don't don't stop calling while you're doing switch over from Advent to Tamarack. That's right. So can you take us take us back? Like how did you how did you get started in this industry initially? Like were you did you come straight into financial planning and, and investment management out of college or were there some steps in between for you? So I started working when I was fourteen, so I've done lots of different things. I really started working because I wanted to take a trip to the Philippines to visit an exchange student that lived with my family. And my parents said I could go if I earned the money. (laughs) And so I started working and my father said that I could invest alongside him if I wanted to in order to make my money make money. I think his secret plan all along was to introduce me to the markets because I I have always loved markets and economies and numbers and currencies. My growing up my family spent some time living overseas and so I was exposed to a lot of that pretty early. So I I started investing when I was 14 also, and it's really what started my lifelong love of the markets. And really everything that I've done since then has in some way or another been, you know, because of my desire to work with the markets. So out of college, I was a double major in accounting and finance. And I studied accounting because I felt like it was the language of business. And if I knew the language of business, I would understand business better. I started out of college as a working for Pricewaterhouse, eventually I got the experience to earn my CPA, really did not want to stay in accounting, but recognized that if I was going to do something else, I really needed more education. So I went back to grad school and got an MBA in finance. 
And out of grad school, I was fortunate to be hired by Morgan Stanley in their private client division. You know, at the time, Morgan Stanley was a small, private, very high-quality, top-tier firm. And, you know, I really felt like I had really made it and was really thrilled. And I got to Morgan Stanley, and they had a fantastic training program. I spent a year in New York where I got to rotate through every desk and every department at the firm, and then came back to San Francisco to to work as a broker for high net worth individuals here in San Francisco. And the reality was, it was a great job, but just not one that I liked. I hated being on the sell side. I Let's really... Let's just say you've, you've used the word broker more than once there. I, I know you know the industry well, so I'm going to presume you're, you're using that term quite deliberately. So, I mean, was it at the end of the day, the challenge was still like you, you were working with high net worth folks in a private client group at the end of the day, the responsibility was still to sell the securities and the company's inventory, like at the end of the day, that was the job or was it at least a little more broader than that? It was broader than that. I mean, Morgan Stanley never asked us to do anything that crossed the line. That time, you know, we're talking about the mid-80s. There was no other model for working with wealthy individuals other than being at a trust company, being at an individual strategy manager, or being at a brokerage firm. I mean, you know, none of the brokerage firms had you know, consulting groups or, you know, there was no, you know, the RIA business was in its real infancy. It was, it was really just starting. So the people who were working with wealthy individuals and families at that time were all either, you know, working for a trust company or working for a brokerage firm or working for a single strategy type manager. So you were at Morgan Stanley then for a couple of years that you I was there for three years and I woke up one day and realized that everything about that world revolved around Success being defined by money. Money was how you kept score of who was the best broker on the floor? Yes. So, you know, you could be a very poorly behaved individual, but if you were a big producer, your behavior was tolerated. You know, I grew up, I did not grow up in a wealthy family, and I grew up with a lot of messages around money like, you know, money's a tool and money doesn't make you who you are. Your character makes you who you are. And so, you know, all of a sudden I was in this world where the, there, was, there was one yardstick and the yardstick was money. You know, f- frankly, it just was so, it was such a bad fit for me and who I am that I, I decided I, I either have to, you know, make money the most important thing in my life, or I have to do something else. 
I chose door number two. I chose to do something else. And I took a year off and traveled. And during that year off, I realized it really wasn't the markets. It was my role. And that if I could find a way to work in the markets where my role was more like my role was as a CPA, that that would be nirvana for me. And so I started to look for, you know, what could I do where I would sit on the same side of the table as the client and have no conflicts of interest and really be their advocate and be able to customize to their needs. You know, I started looking around and found some things that were close, but not... So exact. you looked at like other, other investment management firms? I looked at other investment management firms. I looked at institutional firms that didn't work with individuals. And I went to them and tried to get them to start a division working with individuals. You know, I went to other small firms that did both fee and commission-based stuff. I went to the consulting firms and... And ultimately, what ended up happening is I went to a small firm that did both fee and commission work. I still, it still wasn't the right thing for me. And they also had a very different way of running their business. And so when I look back on it, it was really a gift because it really made me realize I have very strong views about what it is I want in terms of an environment to work in and what it is I want in terms of the way I work with clients. And I'm not going to be happy until I try that. And if it doesn't work, I'll get a job. Because I was employable. I knew I was employable. You know, I wasn't looking for a job. I was really trying to find my calling. And so I find with a lot of entrepreneurs in, in, in general that, that go out and start businesses, often it comes from just that drive of now I would call it a vision. Usually in real time, it feels more just like something like I, I know there's a certain way that I think things should be done. I can't find a way to do the things the way I think they should be done when I'm working in various jobs. So the only way I'm going to see things done the way I think they should be done is I got to make a firm and do it myself. And that's kind of how it lands. So was that your jump that ultimately you you left Morgan Stanley, you took a year off, you got a sense of what you wanted it to look like. You interviewed a whole bunch of firms and couldn't find anybody that was ready to do that. And so you said, you know, darn it, I'm, I'm just going to found my own firm. Yeah. I, I mean, there was a step in between, which was I really was reluctant to start my own thing. Um, I was going to say, it took, I, took you like I, a year, a year and a half here from when you... <laughs> When you left Morgan Stanley to go out, like it, it doesn't sound like you were excited and enthusiastic to say, I want to start my own business from scratch. No, I really thought, you know, it was kind of a crazy idea. And I was looking for, you know, how we all collect evidence to support our beliefs. I was really looking for evidence that this was a crazy idea. 
And so I went to some of my clients who had been my clients at Morgan Stanley and who I still stayed close to after I left. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this. And, you know, this is, I, I sort of laid out the whole thing. And, you know, fully expecting them to say, oh, that's really a nice, optimistic idea, but nobody's going to go to a startup firm with no, you know, history or track record or anything. Right. You got to have the Morgan Stanley name at the top of your business card if you want to get right. people. And, and that's what I was really expecting to hear. All of these clients that I – these – uh, clients from Morgan Stanley that I was close to, that I went to, they all said, oh, my God, that's such a great idea. We're in. <laughs> so your clients pushed you over the edge. And and so it was like, oh, no, now I have to do this. Do it. Yeah. I, <laughs> so you, you, I was, you peer pressured yourself into starting the business because you told your prospective clients about it and they said you should do it and then you couldn't back down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So what did that leap look like? Did you, so I guess you, you landed as an independent RIA. Did you, you know, start out from scratch? Like I, I want to do asset management and financial planning and work with high net worth clients. Like was it, did you start it then with the vision of what it is now or did it, did it look different initially? When I started, I did not pay myself for three years. I gave myself three years to make it work, and it I should have given myself two because it took almost exactly three years. But I started totally from scratch in a rented office space, making every single decision and doing everything that needed to be done. And you know, deciding from the get-go what the portfolio management software should be and how the stationery should look and, you know, all of that right from the start. And so when when you say it took three years, was that three years to get like just cash flow positive for business expenses or is it like three years just to, to get back to the number you used to earn when you were an employee? Three years to get cash flow positive. Ouch. Okay. And 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 then you got to take something out, which I'm gonna imagine was probably not a huge number in year four either. Yeah. So it it really you know, I mean I started working with clients with a hundred thousand dollar minimum and grew it from there. You know, I was doing consulting projects on the side and I was teaching and I was doing other things so that I wasn't just living on credit cards. <laughs> but, you know, it was really just a total, you know, dive in. And, you know, for every decision that I made, I really tried to make the right long-term decision. I really tried to approach things with a lot of faith that it would work and also, it was really important to me to have a high degree of both professionalism and integrity. And I decided if I'm, if I'm going to go through the pain of, you know, creating this, I really want to create something that I'm proud of and something that is a place I want to come to work every day and 
where I love the people that I work with and I care about the clients that I work for and that it's team-oriented, collaborative environment. I mean, I had a, a whole list of things that were sort of my perfect world and I just decided, you know, this is my opportunity to create my own world and I'm going to go for it. And if it doesn't work, I'll get a job. And if it does work, I will live in my own perfect world, <laughs> which is, you know, I have to say a pretty great thing. Yeah. So was that a driver for you, the, the idea that like I can... I can always fall back on getting a job. I am employable. I have experience in a CPA and all that. So was that basically the fallback plan? I'm going to I'm going to try yeah. this for 3 years and if not I'm going to go get a job. Yeah. I mean, you know, by 3 years in, you know, I had my CFP, my CFA, I had my CPA. I knew I was employable. So, but also having worked since I was 14, I and having come from a big family where you, you know, learn to do lots of different things, you know, I, I just have an underlying, you know, belief that if I needed to drive a bus to support my family, I would drive a bus and I would be a really great bus driver. Like, I don't feel like things are beneath me or that I need to operate at some super human level, I felt like I would do what I needed to do ultimately to support myself and my family if I ended up just with a job. How do you get through three years of making no money? That's that's a that's a thousand days, like just you know, one day after another for a thousand days of inching towards just break even, right? Not even I'm going to actually feel like I'm earning a fair wage for all this work. Just at least the negative cash flow will stop. So I had some savings. I did some consulting work. I did some things like teach, you know, did not pay a lot. But I also had really cut my expenses to the bone. So I did not have a extravagant lifestyle. And I did... Uh, you know, at the very end, I did use credit cards. So you were actually racking up debt and negative cash flow by the end just to keep the business going? Yeah. And then... Uh, Didn't you have a financial planner to tell you that's a bad thing to do? It actually turned out to be a really good thing to do. You know, I was smart about how I moved it around, and so I didn't. it didn't end up costing me a lot. I really, I did not want to raise outside capital, and, you know, by the time I felt like it was working and I felt comfortable with the notion of raising outside capital, I didn't need outside capital. So how, so what happened next? You get... Three years in, at least it finally starts turning cash flow positive. Like, where are your clients coming from? Like, where are you finding people? It's what, 1992, and you're knocking on doors in San Francisco? Well, you know, the clients come from the same place they come from today. So our first and best source of clients has always been our existing clients. 
So they were very good to us in terms of, you know, referring people to us. We did a lot of work with centers of influence. So, you know, meeting with a lot of attorneys and accountants. Remember, you know, we had the advantage of this being a new model and approach, fee-only advisory work. And so we had a real differentiator. And so, you know, we could meet with attorneys or accountants and just let them know that this was you know, now out there and available to people. So we got a lot of referrals from accountants and attorneys, and especially those who were connected with our existing clients who saw our work sort of up close and personal. And then we did a number of things like I would do teach seminars or speak at a investment club or you know, other venues. And that was always really helpful in terms of, you know, building connections and bringing in business. You know, it just slowly built over time. And I would say, you know, it was it was much harder to go from 200 million to 500 million to a billion than to go from, you know, a billion to two and a half. Interesting. Well, I I hear the first billion's the hardest. (laughs) So that dynamic of just, well, so I guess let me ask, so what what is it that made the, the second billion easier than the first? What changed? Larger clients felt more comfortable joining us once we had, you know, a certain amount of years of history and also a certain size asset base. And I know we've seen this in the industry benchmarking studies for a for a while now that the largest independent advisory firms really do seem to have the largest average client size. So there's like this almost linear projection that the the larger the firm, the larger its average client size tends to be. And, and kind of support of this, the larger the firm, the more affluent people seem to be confident in the size of the firm. Yeah, I mean a lot of People don't want to be the largest client, and they also want to know that you are comfortable and capable of dealing with the issues of clients at that level. And, you know, there are different issues. I mean, you know, when our clients were smaller, we dealt much more with is their asset base sufficient? Now that our clients are larger, we deal much more with wealth transfer, whether it's to heirs or to charity. And so there are different sets of issues based on different size clients. And so it's it's a legitimate thing for, for a large client to think about. Is there a particular crossover you find where those those conversations and dynamics tend to change? Like, is that five million dollars of net worth, or two million, or ten million, or twenty million, where the the conversations and the the service set starts to shift? Well, I guess I don't know because I'm not having the conversations, 
you know, with a million dollar client like I used to. But I would say part of the reason we set our minimum where we did was because our portfolios now are more endowment style portfolios. And that's more appropriate for a client that has a larger asset base where they can meet minimums on private investments and are qualified purchasers. And and so, you know, for us, we found that it is important that there's a match between, you know, not just your capabilities, but your offering and your target client. Were there, as you look back at this path from, you know, first employee, well, for, for uh, owner employee yourself, just trying to get to break even after three years to the subsequent 23 years or so since then, where it's gone to four, four plus billion dollars, almost four and a half billion dollars under management, were, were there particular walls or challenge points that hit you as the business grew and evolved? Or was it just kind of a slow and steady, we just kept accruing clients and accruing clients and you look back after 26 years, like, wow, there's there's four and a half billion dollars and sixty six people here now. Boy, it would be, it would be, it would be great if it was just a easy, slow, steady progression. But one of my favorite comics is this one that is, you know, what we think success looks like. And it's like this straight upward sloping line to the right. And then the other chart is what success really looks like. And it looks like sort of a hairball, you know, where the line goes all over the place. And I would say there were problems and challenges all the time, and there still are. And that, to me, that's just the the nature of life and the nature of a business that is growing and evolving. And solving problems is part of what managing the business is really all about. I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, that that will ever go away. So are there particular kind of walls you hit or problems that you had that you worked through that were inflection points for for you or for the business? There are any that stand out in that path? Yeah, I, I would say one of the big things was was me. I resisted being a leader. I didn't want to separate myself and I wanted to be one of the gang. And for a long time, I resisted sort of this mantle of leadership. I finally realized that it was crazy that I was resisting (laughs) being the leader. I was the leader and I needed to first of all, learn about leadership. And second of all, I needed to be a very intentional leader and really, you know, think about what kind of leader I wanted to be. And I think my resistance of being a leader was having this notion of leadership as very hierarchical. And you know, once I figured out that I could be, I didn't have to be hierarchical, I could be collaborative, I could be inspirational, I could be 
my favorite Jack Welsh saying, I think it's Jack Welsh, be the leader you would want to follow. Once I realized that, things went a lot better. So did you like literally go to some kind of leadership training? Like how did you how did you work through this? Yeah, I'm a book person. I'm a voracious reader and so I just started reading a lot about leadership and then you know, whenever I went to any conference, instead of going to the technical sessions, which is what I'm really drawn to, is well, you yeah, know, building CPA, my CFA, CFP, yeah, building my my knowledge. I would start to go to all the leadership sessions. I finally. You know, it would have been a lot easier to, you know, take a course, but it just took me a while to embrace my role as being a leader, which I know sounds crazy, having started this firm and grown it. But I think until I did that, I think I was a barrier and a challenge so I think our other challenges, you know, we have certainly had people challenges over time until we really learned how important our culture and values are to us. And we really started to screen for a culture and values match as well as a skills match. And we finally realized, you know, if you get smart people, you can teach them skills. But it's very hard in adults to teach them culture and values if they don't already have resonant values. So this is the the old, you know, hire for culture and teach the skills later. Yeah, I, I think the ideal is both. You know, you want skills, but if I have to choose between skills and values, I choose values and and teach skills. And, you know, we, we just made, you know, we had some heartache until we learned this lesson. Because if you, if you have people who aren't a values match, you know, I, I think I told someone one day speaking about someone who had been on the team who wasn't a values match, it was like being trapped in a tent with a mosquito, you know, where you you just can't, uh, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know, it's there and it's buzzing and there's all this noise and you can't rest. But, you know, until you get the mosquito out, you don't get any rest. And it's sort of like that when you have people that are not a values match. Until you find a better home for them, you just can't, you just can't get rest. So, so, so how, do you, how do you find and identify these people? Like, is there a particular uh, process or, or, or strategy or something? Like, how do you, how do you get values match people. I feel like it's one of those things you say, but like, how do you do that? We have a very exhaustive interview process. So people go through three rounds of interviews. So, and this is, you know, even entry level people go through three rounds of interviews. So the third round includes people like me. I try to be in the interview process for every finalist 
And But by the time they get to me, they've probably met nine or 10 people on the team. And, and then if we're thinking about making them an offer, we also do testing. What kind of testing tools do you use? It's, we have an outside consultant who does it, and she does four or five different things. But, you know, it's part of what she tests for. It's not just decision making, and but it's, you know, consistency, integrity, you know, those kinds of things. And so, you know, we have found over time that that sort of broad interview process. By the time someone comes to work here, we have a pretty good sense of who they are and that they are a fit. You mentioned on the leadership side as well and that you were a book reader. And so I'm curious, are there are there particular authors or books that were transformative for you in that process? In terms of the leadership I think the one that resonated the most for me was, I think his name is Patrick uh, Lencioni. He does uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, I think, and a couple of books like that. Yes. And, you know, for some reason, you know, his work spoke to me. And then, you know, I've read lots. I've collected quotes my whole life and so i i started really looking a lot at quotes on leadership and then that would lead me to you know someone who who i might want to look at or or learn about i also did things like a group of friends that gets together once a year and we talk about our lives and set goals and laugh and play games. And a number of them, almost all of them, have had very senior positions at either public or private companies. Like effectively a study group of other people who are executives or business leaders? Yeah, And now I'm in an actual study group of CEO founders of wealth management firms. But back then, I didn't have that. I really had my, what I call my girls group. And they were incredibly helpful to me as I was struggling with some of these things because I trusted them and I could be very open and honest and vulnerable and, you know, they could really give me great advice. And so that made a huge difference. I mean, I I really encourage people who are struggling with these issues that they don't have to struggle alone. And how do you find those kinds of of study groups? Like, is there someplace you search for them? Did you just say, hey, I I want this study group, so I'm going to make it and, and create it yourself? Like, how do they come about for for maybe an advisor out there who says like, yeah, that sounds really great. Now, where do I find one? I know that a number of the firms, you know, for example, Schwab has an executive leadership program. And for people who go through that program there, they have study groups coming out the other side. You know, a number of firms at their national conferences are starting to help people put study groups together depending on what they're 
interest area is. A lot of local professional organizations can be a great source so for F- a study FPA, group. NAPFA, those kinds of groups. Exactly. And then, but I wouldn't discount the idea of putting your own group together and just deciding, you know, what is it that you want and need? And, you know, can you put together a circle of people that, you know, where you'll have common ground rules and you'll meet periodically and you'll help and work with each other. So I know for women, you know, there have been these lean-in circles that have been, you know, very successful as well. And so I'm curious about that angle as well. So not just a a founder and, and business owner, but a woman that's done that in an environment that was not terribly friendly to a lot of women, particularly in the 1980s. It's frankly still, we're at about 23% female CFPs and the number hasn't moved much, but it was it was even more imbalanced back then. So were there any particular, I guess, challenges or reflections that you have back as you look back going through this as a, as a woman advisor in particular, maybe that other women listening today would, would find helpful for perspective? I personally feel like women have a real advantage in this business because by nature, nurturers and client work comes very naturally to people who are nurturers, I find. So I'm surprised that more women haven't found their way to this. I really feel like it's a it's a great role for women. It was much harder when I was on Wall Street at a firm like Morgan Stanley than it is in my own little bubble that I have created. (laughs) And it's interesting because people who don't want to work with women or have an attitude about women CEOs or they don't show up in my conference room to express their opinion, those people... I don't see. They screen themselves out. And so who I do see that shows up are people who appreciate a woman CEO or appreciate the fact that 50% of my team is female. Or And so, you know, one of the real advantages, and, you know, maybe this will inspire some people, but one of the real advantages in creating your own world is that then you get to, you know, live in that environment and it it sort of screens out, you know, people self-select in. Right, as to who wants to be part of that environment, that business, that world that you've that you've yes. created. And it's it's a fantastic thing. It's really it's really been great. And so My experience early in my career was when I was at Pricewaterhouse, there were no women partners. When I was at Morgan Stanley, there were 14 women brokers worldwide. Worldwide. (laughs) In in my department, there are 14. Right. So the, the things that you can imagine, the things that you've heard about, yes, all true. They all happened. 
But now, later in my career, I find it to be a tremendous advantage because, you know, it's it's like we're a novelty and people appreciate it and enjoy it. And, you know, I hear from people all the time. We, you know, we recently got hired by a significant client and the matriarch of the family said, I'm so happy to be with a firm run by a woman. So it it feels to me like just like our strengths can also the flip side of our strengths can be our weaknesses. The same is true. Those those things that you might have thought of as difficult or disadvantageous in one setting, in another setting, you know, they can really be your advantage. So as you look back over this career trajectory that you've had, I'm curious, is there any particular thing that you say like this was this was like the turning point? I got this I got this thing right and that's what drove it all forward. I mean, was it just the decision to move away from the the brokerage firm and start your own firm that you would view as that as that turning point or was there another one that came along the way you would say that that's what really powered it forward into the success that it is today? So I think there are definitely moments that you can point to, but I would say it's not one thing, it's a series of things. And you know, for all of us, we can look at moments in our lives where we had choices to make. And if we had gone down, you know, the left path instead of the right, our lives would be really different. And so, you know, starting making the decision to start my firm was definitely at the root of creating what's been created. But you could also say, you know, decision, you know, my desire to travel and my dad's secret plan to get me involved in the markets, you know, you could go back further to that point. And what I would say is it's really a a series of decisions. And in terms of practical things that people can do, I think Certainly one of the best decisions I made was to write an annual business plan. Certainly one of the best decisions I made was to share ownership. I have 17 other shareholders and there's no way we would be what we are today without those other people who who really are as committed to driving this business forward as I am. So what does that look like at your firm? Do they buy in shares? Do they do they earn them as part of their compensation? Is it like a, a bonus for reaching certain objectives? Like how does how does someone actually become a shareholder at at Weatherby Asset Management? So we have, as you might imagine, written criteria for ownership and people get invited to become a part of the shareholder group. And when they're invited, then they have the opportunity to buy shares and they buy shares from existing shareholders. So, you know, we're very committed to staying independent and recycling our equity. And so, 
existing shareholders sell to new shareholders over time. And we have been doing this for a long time because we didn't want to create an issue in terms of any one person controlling the fate of the firm. So there's no one person that owns more than 23% of the firm. So we have distributed ownership, which we believe in. Interesting. And and is there just like an annual valuation process about how that gets done? Yeah, we do it once a year and it's a formula. So it's 50% based on the top line and 50% based on the bottom line. We had an investment banker that we brought in to help us figure out what the formula should be. In terms of like the, the multiples of top and bottom line. Yes, and we do it at a discount to what it would transact for in the outside world because we want to promote internal ownership. So, you know, it's a value creation discount mm-hmm. since I'm presuming like the, the people who get the buy-in opportunity are the people who've been contributing to the growth along the way. So that's part of the that's right the mm-hmm. reward for them as well. Mm-hmm. So as you reflect back on the business, you know, $4.5 billion and $10 million minimums and, and – 60 plus staff is, you know, I think what most people would call at least uh, uh, externally projecting a, a very successful business. And so I'm, I'm curious from your end, particularly since you talked at the beginning about how one of the drivers that made you leave Morgan Stanley was a definition of success that was framed around your money as the, the measuring stick and didn't align for you. So as you look at the business and and yourself now, like, how do you define success at this point? What does that mean to you? Well, for me, it's still really what it was at the beginning, which is do work that I'm proud of with and for people that I care about, then go home and have a life outside of work. So nowhere in there did you hear, you know, number of clients, size of firm, any of that. So I want the business to be healthy and to grow because I want to give opportunity to younger people coming up through the ranks. But by no means do I define success by size. Was it always that way? Or was there a time where, hey, I like I needed to get to a certain size because I got a pay my bills and be able to retire and all that stuff. And then, and then after it gets past a certain size, it's not really about the size and the dollars anymore, or was building in that direction just never really the driver for you? It really, I was really much more driven by serving the clients than by building a big firm. Even though the result happened to be an absolutely enormous firm. (laughs) Yeah. And it is it is sort of ironic but i you know it's so interesting to me in this industry people i think focus disproportionately on you know assets under management on things like that and 
personally, I feel like you can have a really wonderful, successful firm that has a smaller asset base. And that might totally be the right thing for you. And so I, you know, I'm not in the camp of you have everyone has to be big and everyone has to grow indefinitely. And I think it should be driven by what's right for you, what's right for your employees and what's right for your clients. It's, I've always viewed this as an ecosystem and those things all have to be in balance. And, you know, I, what drives me to grow is that, you know, I have really talented younger people coming up through the ranks and I want them to have opportunity to grow and develop. That's what drives me to grow is, is giving them opportunity, but not to see a bigger number on a list somewhere. That, that's not that meaningful to me. I think that's a fantastic place to wrap up right there. What a what a great message. Well, thank you, Deb Weatherby, for joining us on Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Pleasure to be with you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.